You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, Session 315, and this is the Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some of the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's the Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, how y'all doing today? I want to welcome you to the Daniel Glass Podcast. I first have to start by apologizing for the amount of time it's taken me to get this episode uh, up and running. Uh, it, it is going to be a great one, but uh, I was, uh, I've been really uh, heavily involved in the last month in a number of new projects that are getting untracked right now, um, which actually I want to share one of them with you. It's uh, very, very exciting. I uh, I am going to be presenting the inaugural Daniel Glass New York Jazz Intensive in partnership with the Drummers Collective here in New York City, June 3rd through 6th, 2016. And basically, this is going to be four super jam-packed days and nights of jazz in a way that, you know, Daniel Glass would present it, which is from a very unique perspective uh, and really looking at jazz in a very comprehensive kind of way. So we're... um, we're, we'll be uh, gathering, like I said, for four days at the Collective here in New York City. They're uh, letting us have the run of the place, all their facilities, their practice rooms, and we're going to be talking about jazz. Um, in Even if you're an experienced jazz player, I think you're really going to appreciate the perspective that I come from. If you've seen uh, some of the uh, live lessons I've done on Drumeo and Matt Patella's place, uh, if you've taken some lessons with me, you've been to one of my clinics, you know that the way I look at the evolution and the, the way that we play something is very in-depth, very comprehensive. So we're going to look at jazz really from five criteria, evolution, technique, performance, repertoire, and motivation. And uh, I encourage you all to go check that out. We have an early bird special, so up until May 1st, if you um, if you register, there's a discount. We're also having a, a, a scholarship contest that we're running. So I encourage you to go to danielglass.com, look under the Clinics Intensives tab, and you'll find all the information there. There's a cool video uh, talking about all the, uh, the rules of how to enter this scholarship contest so you can win yourself a free spot to the Jazz Intensive. But I encourage you to check that out. I hope if you're into jazz drumming, you'll look at everything we have to offer and you'll come join us for four days in New York. We're also going to be running around uh, a lot of uh, in the evenings going out to some of the legendary jazz clubs here in New York, including Birdland and Fat Cat. And uh, it's just going to be a, a completely comprehensive way. There'll be a, 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 a New York professional rhythm section, a couple tremendous players that I have a trio with right now. Um, so it'll be a real comprehensive opportunity, really regardless of whether you're a beginner or you're more experienced. Uh, this will, Most of this will be new to you, both the technical, the historical, um, the motivational. All of it will really be a very unique approach to, to looking at jazz. So uh, let's move on to the topic of today's episode, which is, of course, uh, drumming legend Steve Smith. And I uh, I don't use that term lightly, although it is bandied about. Everybody says legend this and legend that, but Steve is really a true legend. Uh, I, he really doesn't need a whole lot of introduction, but I will say that just a few days ago, uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to go uh, check out his return to the stage with Journey, first time in 33 years, I believe, uh, on the stage of Madison Square Garden, along with Santana, 
Uh, it was an amazing show. Uh, both bands put on about a two-hour performance. Santana actually had Michael Shreve playing with him for the first time in many years, the original drummer from the Woodstock movie. If you haven't seen Soul Sacrifice from the Woodstock movie, like, go YouTube it right now. It's one of the greatest pieces of, of, of rock footage uh, ever recorded. It's, it's a great documentary, but that performance is certainly... Uh, stands up as as uh, an amazing moment in, in, in drumming lore. Uh, but Michael Shreve was back, as were many of the original members of the Santana band. Greg Raleigh was playing keyboards. Neil Sean came out and played some guitar, um, both of whom left Santana to form Journey. So it was a, it was a, a whole big family kind of a thing going back. Uh, and then later on in the show, Santana did a, a lot of his later material and had a, a, a different band come out, which included his wife, uh, Cindy Blackman Santana, who tore it up, unbelievable, and had a horn section and a couple of vocalists. And so all in all, it was a, a tremendous night of music. And obviously, Steve hitting the stage with Journey, first time in many years. Everyone was excited. Everyone was, you know, a lot of anticipation. And he killed it. It was unbelievable. And the line from this interview, we, we in the interview uh, coming up, we we talk about it. We, sh- we recorded this back in f- uh, February, I think. So, by the way, there might be a couple of glitches, and pardon those glitches, uh, in, in the audio. If he was in his house in Ashland, which is actually out in the countryside, and his satellite dish was covered in about six inches of snow at the time we recorded this, and he'll talk a little bit about that. But uh, uh, it, he was preparing at the time to, to get back with Journey to start the rehearsals, and, and uh, he talks a lot about what it's like after 33 years to go back and play live. Um, they did a, a reunion record but uh, sometime in the 90s, I think, but they, but they never actually performed live. Uh, so... Uh, the line that I take away from this, which I, which I hope is a line that, that is spread far and wide that Steve told me, and he'll mention it in, in the interview. He says, he says, uh, I went out like Hulk Hogan, I'm coming back like Bruce Lee. And I, I just love that because that is, exemplifies everything about Steve Smith that, that I know and love and, and that I want to share with you in my little introduction here before we get into the interview, which is that Steve, I've, I've been very fortunate uh, to have worked on a project with Steve. We wrote a book together called The Roots of Rock Drumming, which we'll also talk about in this interview. And um, uh, in, in getting to know Steve a lot better and having a work process with him, one of the things that just impressed me about him beyond his drumming, which of course is, 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 is always top notch, is uh, his work ethic, his focus, uh, and he really tr- truly is an artist. He's in this. Um, he's in this for the evolutionary process of what it's like to be a human being pursuing uh, pursuing something. And you know whether it's his work with Zakir Hussein, the tabla master, uh, where he's you know Steve has spent 15 years mastering uh, Southern Indian conical. Uh, rhythms and 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 now he's touring in India with with Zakir and some of the greatest uh, percussionists, uh, Indian percussionists. You know, so whether it's that or after he left Journey in in the eighties, pursuing his uh, jazz fusion uh, path and mastering that. Uh, whether it's his history of the U.S. beat uh, DVD, where he spent a long time exploring the roots of. Uh, American music. Um, you know, he, he's always on a journey. He's always on a quest. He's always on his game. He practices six days a week. Um, 
you know, and the man just turned 60. Uh, he could easily be resting on his laurels. But uh, if you get a chance, go check out some of the, I'm sure there are, there are plenty of YouTube videos of, of his solo that he played at this show on Wednesday. And it's, it's, it's unreal. And what's cool is that he was doing the same solo with Journey back on the same tune, a tune called La Du Da, uh, back in the, uh, uh, in the early 80s. And, you know, he's evolved as a player uh, tremendously. You know, a- absolutely incredible. And and so it really is, uh, you know, he left Journey as Hulk Hogan. He was a very physical player and, you know, big, big motions, hard hitting. And now he's Bruce Lee. He's got the one inch punch down. He's playing so much more drums and so much more music with so much less effort. You know, of course, uh, you probably know he studied, like myself, with Freddie Gruber for many years and really refined his technique. And he's just continually questing uh, to to get better, to experience more as, as, a, as a drummer, as a musician, as uh, a human being. And of course, that leads us to the last part of this interview, which is that Steve has a brand new book out. Uh, and a couple of weeks ago, I was fortunate to to go check him out at the Cutting Room. He had a uh, here in New York City. He had a book release uh, party where he talked a lot about it, uh, a launch event. Um, and the book is all about Match Grip, which seems like okay. Well, everybody plays Match Grip. What's a big deal? Well, when you know Steve gets into it, it's it it it's a very serious study. So he'll talk more about that in this interview. So without further ado, I present uh, a wonderful conversation with Steve Smith. Steve Smith, I really want to welcome you to the Daniel Glass Podcast. You're my first official guest, uh, and um, man, couldn't be a better a better guest. So, a pleasure to have All you here. All right, great to be here, Daniel. Thanks for inviting me to be on the podcast. Yep. So, uh, and I, I a wanted, lot of stuff going on. What do you want? To, what do you want to talk about? Well, uh, <laughs> the first thing you might tell us is where you're at because things are uh, perhaps. Um, cutting in and out a little bit. Uh, so, so tell us where right. you are, where you're at right now. Oh, I'm in Ashland, Oregon. I have a house up here in the mountains and uh, there's about five feet of snow on the ground and our internet connection is a, a little, can be a little dodgy because we have a dish and when it gets covered with snow, <laughs> the reception goes in and out. But, and it is snowing right now as it has been for about the last month. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it's, so it's, it's an, it's a beautiful area and, Really pretty and everything, but a little challenging to to be here in the winter months. Exactly. So, uh, round about Christmas time, I ran into you and your wife uh, in the subway in New York City because we both uh, we live a few blocks from each other. At least when you're in New York, and um, we use the same station. Right. And uh, and at that time, exactly. you, you told me uh, a little bit about um, your preparation to uh, go back on the road with Journey. So I'm sure that a lot of drummers out there are very interested and excited to have you back with the band. Um, and uh, I don't know, fill us in, kind of let let folks know how it's been going and what you've been doing to get ready sure, for the gig. Sure. Well, uh, first of all, you know the they've been they the guys in the band have been asking me to to go out on tour with them for you know quite a few years, and and I've always always said no because I've really been just so happy with what I've been doing musically with my own band and playing with all the different great artists that I get to play with. Um, but about a year ago, 
Well, actually, last June, some changes happened in the journey lineup. So, you know, I was able to work on negotiating a situation that would work out where I could make a commitment to tour with them and not actually join the band as a full-time member, which is my preference. I, I like being a free agent. So we worked it out that I would sign on for like a two-year touring cycle. So, so that's, in fact, what I'm, what I'm doing, what I'm uh, getting ready for. And we start. Actually, the first gig is in March. It's like a private uh, corporate gig. And then um, in April, uh, in fact, on April 13th, we'll play our first real gig, which is we'll be at Madison Square Garden with, with Santana and uh, and then go from there. Actually, right after that, I, I go to Europe and play for a week with Steps Ahead and then come back and, and uh, start the actual tour we're journeyed towards the whole summer with the Dave Mason group and the Doobie Brothers, which, which uh, will be a fun lineup. And so pre preparing for, for the gig has been quite interesting because it's really been 30 years since I've played this music live. Um, I, we did get back together in 96 and 97, and we did an album called Trial by Fire, which was a studio record, um, but we never did any touring. So really, the last time I toured with the group was about 1983, I think, 83 or 84. So it, it's been literally 30 years. And since I don't really listen to the music and haven't kept my chops up on, on that particular kind of music, it's a bit like starting over again. I, I actually couldn't really remember the songs. And so I've written a chart for every tune. <laughs> <laughs> a really wow. detailed chart, like I do, you know, when I get hired to play on a record and especially if there's already a like a, a drum machine part or a drum part where the tune's finished and, and people really know what they want as far as the drum part. But they just want me to say interpret it on live drums. I write a very detailed chart. And so I just used the same process and wrote a detailed chart for my own own parts, which was actually pretty interesting and educational. And because uh, I even back then, I didn't write charts out in those days because we rehearsed so much as the tune evolved, my parts evolved. And I just did everything by memory because we were building the tunes from the from scratch, you know. So so we and we took sure. enough time to do that, that I could just memorize the parts that I wanted to play. But I did. I guess I did learn something. One thing I found that was kind of interesting is um, the parts had a lot of improvisation in them uh more than i thought um so so there would be like a basic drum part that i'd come up with for a verse of a tune and then a basic drum part for a chorus but even within the performance on the record there was a lot of variation a lot more than i anticipated and because as as i transcribed it i could you know i see measure to measure and uh, I didn't stick to the part as much as I thought I did. So that was kind of interesting to know that, okay, it doesn't have to be like literal verbatim. It just needs to be pay respect to the part. And then there's some freedom in there. So, so that, that was a nice discovery <laughs> to make. Well, I think, I think the world has changed a little bit in the sense that today we are s like, you know, so focused on the perfect part. And I think 
30, 40 years ago, you know, uh, there was a little more room for uh, approaching a part with some sense of improvisation. I think it has a lot to do with like machines and cut and paste and all of that kind of stuff yeah. where, you know, after a while, people started writing with drum computers and, and cutting and pasting. So drum parts in general became even more, let's say, precise and repetitive, where in yes. in the days of, of Journey, you know, we were like in, you know, we were, we were late 70s, early 80s, and we never played to a click track in those days. We never made demos. We just recorded our rehearsal time, and, and we would write for a period of three to four weeks before we'd go into the studio. But by the time we went into the studio, we really knew what we wanted to record, and we'd record you know, two, four, three, four takes of each song. And that was really about it. And then sometimes we'd splice some of those takes together in the in the old days, you know, like cutting it, cutting the two inch tape and splicing it together. If you think about it kind of in the broader perspective, too, it's sort of uh, if you think about, say, a, a swing tune, you know, from the 1930s, you know, which is obviously what I am thinking about a lot of the time. It's you have more of a general section and you approach it in a certain way, but there is room for um, for your own interpretation and how, you know, sort of more of an improvisational approach. So I think rock, since it grew out of that, sort of went from the same playbook, you know, yeah. until, like you said, the whole notion of that, that a drum part is a programmed part and that now when a human plays that part, they have to sound more like a programmed machine. Uh, you know, that's sort of the, the, the shift yeah. the, that's gone on, perhaps. Sure. Um, well, very cool. Yeah. So, Go ahead. Do you so want to say... Yeah, I just then I'm just, you know, trying to trying to familiarize myself with all the music. So I'll practice along with with the records, you know, the recorded performances a lot. That is my also my process before I go on tour with anyone from Mike Stern to Hiromi or, you know, my own band. I, I really get real comfortable with the music. So by the time I get to the stage, I'll I'll have a sense of freedom with the music. And um, and then it'll it'll be interesting since I haven't played a gig with the band yet. But I'll, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens with those parts and how much new in you know new info I bring to to the band and and to those parts. Um, but one thing that I I can say that um uh, that will be different i think for fans that have heard the band live over the last few years with dean playing the drums as i noticed like dean's approaches um because i've listened to a lot of his live stuff just to get familiar with if anything has changed over the years you know if there's any changes in you're, the you're talking about uh you're talking about Dean Castronova, right? Right, right, exactly. Yeah, like yeah. just I want to keep up with what they've been. You know, they've changed the music uh, from the original recordings, and they really haven't. It does. It seems like they really haven't changed the recordings or the the interpretation of the tunes that much. But Dean's approach is it's more like rock metal kind of approach. Where when I mm -hmm. listen back to the to the original recordings and my interpretation it definitely has a, like a more of a r&b-ish groove to the rock it's like rock with some r&b kind of funk groove to it so that's i can see now that i'll i'll be bringing that to the table like just sort of settling it in 
in the music into a little bit more of a funky rock groove. Cool. And you had mentioned something in our chat on the subway about um, the physical preparation, because obviously, you know, these are arena shows you're going to be doing or very, very much larger venues than you've been playing recently, which, you know, is always kind of a big shift. Um, yeah. And uh, you want to mention any of that, what you're doing to, to physically prepare yourself? Well, I'm definitely doing a lot of yoga and getting myself and physically fit, like strengthening my core, which I've always done, but I've just sort of upped the game, you know, on that, staying flexible and making sure that I, you know, practice and, and practice this music a lot, which um, requires in some ways you'd say loud kind of drumming on almost every single song which that I'm not used to because most of the music that I play has a a very wide range of dynamics and we can play a lot of tunes that are kind of really quiet or, or I use brushes or and then parts of tunes or some tunes are kind of loud you know but with this kind of music everything's pretty loud <laughs> so my goal yeah. is to not hurt myself that's number 1 um and to a good play, goal to have, yeah, and to play with a good full sound, but not not loud for loud's sake. Just just so the drums sound big and full, and then let the mics do the rest of it. And so I don't want to, you know, yeah. over overhead. I went out and actually got in ear monitors, which I never had, but yeah, I got fitted for some in ear monitors, so now I have that uh, because you know everyone in the band does use the in ears. Um, I'm using three, you know, three distinct ways of, um, I play, you know, traditional grip and I still play traditional grip. I play match grip now a lot more than I used to. And I'm playing pretty much, I'm learning how to play every song open-handed as well. So I have a lot of options. Wow. And and I'm going to be using, yeah, I'm going to be using three different snare drums. I've also been figured that out too, like the main snare. Uh, you know, in in the middle of the kit, and then a, a really detuned 14-inch snare to my left, and then a 12-inch snare to the left of that. So I want to. That's one thing I want to introduce into the music is really changing up the the snare sounds for different tunes or different parts of tunes because I feel like that brings a modern element to it, it, but it also makes a ballad sound more like a ballad when it's got the deep snare drum, like how we recorded it on the album, rather than using the same snare sound for, for every tune. Sure. And one one other question about about the transitioning experience. You know, obviously the venues you're playing in are much bigger. When you played with Journey back in the 70s and 80s, you know, it's your, you know, your, 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 movements on the kit are reaching out to a, a, to people that are much farther away. So, you know, when you're playing in arena, you know, you tend to play bigger. Um, are you kind of going to change up your approach sort of visually? Are you thinking about that? No, I'm not. In fact, I, you know, I want I might've left Hulk Hogan, but I want to come back Bruce Lee. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's a great, that's actually a fantastic you know. way to put it. <laughs> Definitely. I want it to look like nothing's happening up there. It's total minimal motion. It's as little as I can get away with to get the sound and feel that I want. Great. Well, I'm I'm sure that uh, everyone is 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 excited to see this. I know I am. Um, as I had mentioned in one of my earlier podcasts, I I saw Journey 
back in, I guess, 80 or 81 and uh, in Honolulu when I was a teenager and um, was was right. wowed by your performance and, and indeed was a, a big fan of the band. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, to getting the chance to, to see it in its latest incarnation. For Great. Sure. Yeah, it um, should be fun. Definitely yeah. fun. So, yeah. So let's... Um, Let's uh, change the subject slightly, and actually, let's um, let's take a minute and talk about. You just mentioned to me and sent me some stuff about a new project that you have coming out, and I know this is something that, in our personal conversations, you and I have been talking about for a while now. Yeah. Um, uh, and your new your new project is um, all about match grip, which is which is really interesting. It's called Pathways of Motion, and it's it's kind of. Um, I mean, from what I from what I know, you know, you've sort of had a renaissance with um, falling back in love with the match grip or getting back into that again. Uh, so, um, you know, maybe you can tell us what prompted this uh, and sort of sure. what, what the project's about. Well, I started to develop some problems with, it's called the CMC joint at the base of the left thumb. And and I think it's for, from, you know, many years of playing traditional grip, and and also probably many years of practicing and, and probably practicing past the point of fatigue, because I found that I don't think, you know, I, I develop problems just from playing gigs. It's that I practice a lot. And now I'm realizing sometimes you can I think you can practice too much to the point where your muscles are fatigued, but you keep going and then you're really just causing some damage you know you're really kind of hurting yourself because your muscles are exhausted and i probably have mm. done that a lot over the years so you know so when i started having issues with the traditional grip and the cmc joint i just started to play more match grip with the left hand and that gave me a break you know that gave that traditional grip a break and and then i could switch between on gigs i could play maybe 50 50 or or then sometimes now like you know 70 percent match grip 80 percent match grip and save the traditional grip from when i really need it because i have more facility but after a while i i decided i wanted to see if i could develop the same degree of facility uh with match grip that i had with traditional grip because um yeah my left hand when i played match grip was way behind my right hand, let's say, and not even close to what my left hand could do uh, with traditional grip. When I play with traditional grip, my hands are very even, you know, they're very, let's say, evenly matched as far as dexterity goes. Right. Uh, but with the match grip, you know, my left hand match grip, I didn't have near the dexterity that my right hand had. So, so the first step I decided was to exactly mirror image my left hand to my right hand. And I could see that because I had played the jazz ride beat and played the ride cymbal for so many years, literally like 50 plus years, that the that I had like sort of carved very smooth pathways of motion through the air, you know, mm. through through space. And and that is was the key to the flexibility and control and endurance and you know and dexterity of the of my right hand so i wanted to train my left hand to do the same thing so the first step was that i started to i put up a mirror and i play the jazz ride beat precisely like exactly the same with both hands 
And I could do it slow if I slowed it down enough and just had my left hand completely mimic the motions of my right hand. So essentially, I had my right hand teaching my left hand. And then I discovered that there was really four distinct ways that I play the right hand where I and that's where you know this this new book DVD is an examination into the four distinct match grip uh embouchures that I use and and I and it's so match grip isn't as simple as match grip it's not just one thing it can be a lot of different things so for instance to try to describe these four grips the first one is just a real basic german grip where you you you, you know grab the stick like you just grab a, let's say a timpani mallet or, you know, pick up a couple of candles <laughs> or something, you know, mm-hmm. you just like holding the sticks with the palms facing down and, and the hand is pretty close, but you know, but you're keeping the hand relaxed. So that became my, my call grip number one. And then to start to develop more finesse, more control, I open the hand up so there's the resonating chamber like what freddie groover taught us you know that where the hand mm-hmm. opens and you're starting to hold the stick a little further down the fingers into the first crease of the fingers rather than you know up up into the palm of the hand and then the third grip yeah. is the thumbs up fingers out and french grip you know straight you know you know that that grip with the thumbs up the palms facing each other fingers extended yeah and then the fourth grip is what I call the Tony Williams match grip, where then you take that French grip, but then you really only hold the sticks with like the back two fingers, the ring finger and the little finger. And the front fingers are pretty open and relaxed. And you have that range of motion like a like a taiko drummer, you know, like the stick can go way up straight over your head. So you have a very mm. large range of motion versus like if you take it back to grip number one, your range of motion is is. Uh, with the palm down it's just your wrist bending up and down so you know so yeah. that that's that can that's functional but it doesn't give you the range of motion as is you turn your hand have your thumb up and then you can you know raise your hand all the way over your head so you have a larger range of motion to get a bigger sound with the least amount of effort so i spent a lot of time with all four grips and started to get this my left hand to be have a lot of dexterity and to now at this point it's pretty close to being you know as as good as my left hand traditional grip i don't know if it uh, ever quite get there but it's getting real close and one of the keys to it was to like i said play the ride symbol a lot so i'll just with the left hand so i'll just play along with records and so and then to bring it back to this journey tour you know that music is simple enough where uh um the left hand is just basically playing eighth notes or you know quarter notes or 16th notes but but it has to be done with a nice feel um but i'm playing that on the ride cymbal so which leads me to then i can just play this the snare drum easily you know with the right hand and and the coordination after you get sort of i through basic coordination and i and i did play you know, don't stop believing open-handed because of the drum part that I imagined for that tune. And the only way I could do it was to play it open-handed. And I, I've dabbled, let's say, in open-handed playing a little bit over the years. But right. I decided to, you know, to go for it because of getting my left-hand technique up and then giving myself a, a little more options. It's actually physically, a little physically easier to play some of this music open-handed because... um 
I'm not crossing the right hand over the left hand to play the hi hat and you know play the and and trying to play the snare drum under that. It just it's kind of just an easier approach, and I can get a nice big sound on the snare it's, drum with the right hand with very yeah, little motion. So it's kind of like the Gary Chester, yeah, the Gary Chester New Breed thing, where every hand, each well, each each of the two hands has its own sphere of influence, and the you know. The, the two basically operate without having to cross over essentially um, it it is a little so. like that but i but i still cross over it you know some things i'll, I'll still cross over because it'll feel right you know it's just the feel yeah. like when i play the tune after the fall there's something about the feel that i get when i play traditional grip on the snare drum and the right hand on the hi-hat it's more of a like i don't know a groovier bernard purdy kind of a thing that i can that yeah that, that grip it feels right and when i do it with open-handed it has a different feel to it so so in a way it's not exactly look approaching it as gary Ch chester's style it's approaching it like it each each approach has its own personality to it so the mm. like for instance and then when that, I play the, that can work in certain songs yeah exactly because when i play the open-handed thing it's just it sounds it's a little more straight it's a little straighter because it has a little mm -hmm. less of the post notes and a little less of the little nuance on the hi-hat. It's just a little straighter because, you know, it's kind of new for me and it's I just play it, play the beat in its most simple form. Well, one of the most interesting things about, you know, this transition you've gone through and the creation of this project is that, you know, it's one of the things that really inspires me about you is that as life presents you with things and as as we all age you know and and uh and the body has taken a toll from doing this very physical activity that we do um you know you you use that as a learning opportunity rather than you know well you know is this going to stop me from playing and and find new ways to work with with the tools that you have with with the body that that you have and not only work to to fix the body but to adapt um, so you could still do what you're, what you're doing. So I'm super excited to, you know, and then, you know, from all that thinking and learning, make a, a, a product out of it that the rest of us can learn from, you know, so that's, that's a fantastic <laughs> thing. And I'm, I'm super, really excited to check this out because, um, you know, I've, I've had my share of physical issues the last few years as well. And, and, um, right. so just seeing all this that we've had discussions about, but now kind of, yeah. um, collected into one uh co cohesive volume with some some definite uh focus and direction is is great man cool well thank you you know it's no that is a good point that because every time some kind of new physical ailment comes up and we've talked over the years like you know first was my uh i had a torn rotator cuff in my right shoulder and that's yeah. you know one of the things that, that really got me into doing a whole lot more yoga which you know, over the years, it, it was a frozen shoulder, it turned out, you know, where I couldn't, could hardly move my arm. So now, you know, I've It just doesn't sound that. good in any, on any level. No, it's horrible. It was terrible. Frozen and then, shoulder. And then, <laughs> but then, you know, then my left hand started acting up. And, you know, like you said, am I ever going to be able to play again? Well, at least I can, you know, get by with playing some of this stuff, match grip. But then... You know, as like you say, I just I started working on on uh, re trying to refine all of my technique and, and stay healthy. 
Um, and, and I went in the studio to record a few lessons for drum guru, um, about mm-hmm. with this match grip idea. Um, cause Rob Wallace got interested, who is the, you know, runs Hudson music and drum guru. And once we got in the studio and I started recording, he just said, okay, keep going. And by the time we were finished and we, so we spent the whole day recording rather than just doing a few lessons. That's when he said, I think we have a book here. <laughs> you know, so it, yeah. it so, so there is, happened organically like that. And there is a book. Uh, it's a book and DVD package. It so is, yeah. what is the book? Is that, uh, uh, how does the book, are there exercises or photos or, yeah. you know, diagrams? Like what? The book goes exactly with the, the DVD. So essentially we recorded it in the format of Drum Guru, which is a series of, uh, four, three to four minute lessons that get the packaged into these packs where there's about 10 lessons in a pack. And so each one has a subject and then you, you get into the detail. Well, the book follows that. So the book is they transcribe everything that I said. So the words are all written out. Everything that I play is written out and there's photos as well. So when you buy the book that comes with the DVD of the entire, uh, you know, all the video lessons are in, in the DVD. I do think it will be available on drum guru as well without the book, but it makes more sense to to get the book because then everything's written out. You know, you see uh, the transcription of, of all the examples that I played and and the examples there there are some you can definitely see them as exercises but but in a way i i see them as more than exercises they're the building blocks of a vocabulary so i don't i don't do exercises yes. something that's just hard to play just for the sake of you know developing more coordination or or chops it's like it has to serve a lot of purposes for me and i i have a pretty functional vocabulary so it's it's taking short b- examples of the building blocks of my vocabulary and breaking it down slowing it down and putting it into manageable bits you know it's like single strokes double strokes paradiddles double paradiddles triple paradiddles you know flam accents things like that that can be and then i show how you you can use those to play the play music and how you come up with different, I have different patterns that I use to come up with different like funk grooves or jazz, jazz drumming, uh, time playing parts. So it, it really encompasses, uh, drum, fundamental drum technique using match grip, but it, the vocabulary can be used in any genre. So there's some very practical examples yeah. that are given as to how you can adapt this to whatever style of drumming that you do, which I think is great. Exactly. Yep. Cool. Well, I I am looking forward to, to checking out this new project. And in fact, I just found out about it. Like you just tur- turned me on to it essentially right before we had this conversation. So I'm really excited now. Cool. Yeah. The and re- uh, the release so now is the first, yeah, the go ahead. first week of February is when. Uh, first week of February. Yeah. When it comes out. Perfect. Yeah. Um. So You'll you got you'll have a lot going on this year uh, between the the journey stuff and the new book and and uh, and all of that. Um, so let's let's shift gears once again. We're having a sure. wide ranging, free flowing conversation today. Let's go. Um, okay. And yeah, uh, let's talk about another subject that's near and dear to both of our hearts, uh, which is the topic of of 
the roots of rock and roll, the roots of, uh, and the, specifically the roots of rock drumming. And of course, we uh, collaborated on a book project a few years back uh, called The Roots of Rock Drumming, which is also a book and DVD package. It's a bunch of interviews uh, that we did with, I think, 23, 22 um, sort of uh, drummers that were made a significant contribution um, during, say, a 10-year period, maybe uh, or 15-year period of 1950 or the early 50s up to sort of the mid-60s. And um, um, you interviewed most of these guys, and I did. Uh, a few of my interviews were included in the book. Um, and, and we continue to talk about uh, the early years of rock because it is an incredible time, I think, um, uh, sociologically, historically, musically, uh, so much was going on. All these things were intertwined with each other. Um, so I guess maybe you can just for, for the, the listeners that maybe don't know about the genesis of where this, this project came from or, or how it got put together, we can kind of talk about that quickly and then we could talk a little bit about the book and, and see where we sure. go from there. Well, it's, it's interesting how, how these projects get. It started and and this one actually I can trace back to again uh, me playing with Journey where in '96 Columbia Records wanted to put Journey back together because Journey really broke up somewhere like in 1987. Ross, Valerie, and, and I got fired from the band in 1985, and through you know through a whole that's that's a whole nother story. But uh, then the band, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> then the band went on tour with uh, Mike Beard on drums and Randy Jackson on bass, and and then Neil, Sean, Jonathan Kane, and Steve Perry eventually split something like 1987, and and so yeah, ten years later, essentially, uh, Columbia Records wanted to put the that original Escape Frontiers era band back together. So they contact all, all of us and and we all agreed to to make an album. And in my preparation to go back into that world, um, I decided I wanted to do a real thorough music history, U.S. music history, um, you know, like college course of my own design. <laughs> and uh, because the guys in the group are very roots oriented and really know where they come from, so to speak. And, and Neil Sean really come in from the blues and the, in the early, uh, U.S. blues guitar players. And, and then the, you know, then, then the English, uh, guitar players that came from that, like Jeff, you know, the Jeff Beck and, and Eric Clapton and Jimmy Page and, and, and even in, of course, Hendrix was a big influence to Neil Sean. So I knew, you know, somewhat of his background. Steve Perry, I knew really came mainly from Sam Cooke. If you listen closely to Sam Cooke and, you know, compare it to Steve Perry, you'll hear that, that, that was his main inspiration as well as Jackie Wilson and Wilson Pickett and, you know, these great gospel R&B singers. And so, so I decided I, I wanted to know more about that music because even in the years that I played with Journey in the 70s and 80s, I did it by an intuition more than by education. Uh, I, you know, I, my educational focus was jazz when I was young. So, you know, I, I had done that kind of study, history of jazz, but never history of rock drumming. 
So I bought every book I could on, on rock music and history of gospel music and history of country, Western music and, 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 uh, and blues and watch documentaries. And, and I just became fascinated with it. And, and it really started to influence my thinking and playing. And in fact, it, it changed the direction of my band Vital Information as well. Uh, where we became much more roots oriented and got away from using synthesizers and started using, you know, Hammond D three organ sound. And, and um, I remember one time I saw you with Vital Information when I was still living in LA, and this was sort of in the mid two thousands. And and in the middle of one of your tunes, you like busted out a press roll pattern, you know, like an old school New Orleans pre- jazz press right. roll type pattern that you, you used in a certain song. And I was like, yeah, I see all yeah. this this yeah. history stuff coming out. Exactly. Man. Exactly, because I, cool. I was learning all those new beats, like what Earl Palmer played, and and you know some of those great uh, New Orleans drummers. So I was getting to put it to use, and and then um, so I had a great experience making that Journey record, and I approached it with a lot more knowledge, of, you know, really knowing uh, a lot more, having a, a wider vocabulary and understanding of the music, and then and then. Um, I started using those in ideas in my drum clinics in the late uh, 90s. And so, again, Rob Wallace and, and his partner at that time, Paul Siegel, saw me do a drum clinic and said, you know, why don't we do a, a video about this, uh, this, you know, base, this idea. And that became uh, Drum Set Technique, History of the U.S. Speech, which was actually the first uh, uh, video that Hudson Music, it was a DV, the first DVD that Hudson Music made, you know, that was in 2002. And, and while we were in the process of coming up with that, you know, I mentioned the idea, why don't we try to meet some of these drummers that I've been listening to and, and interview them and, and make a project about that, which they thought was a great idea and agreed to. So, so in my travels around the country while I was on tour, and, and sometimes we made special trips, we started to interview Jerry Allison, you know, the drummer from uh, the Crickets, Buddy Holly's group, and uh, DJ yeah. Fontana, Elvis's drummer, and, 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 and so, forth, so on. You know, we just started to collect video footage thinking we could make a, 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 like a movie documentary and eventually we collected a lot of great footage as you know um but to turn mm-hmm. it into an actual documentary was uh, cost prohibitive because of uh, trying to license uh video footage of elvis or buddy holly or any of these guys jerry lee lewis would have been so costly that we would have had to you know had been a had a pbs budget <laughs> in order to do it right <laughs> so right. so that's where that's where you came in and, and we decided to have everything transcribed and then edited and fine-tuned into book form and and that's when when uh, we started to see that you were the person that was the perfect choice to do that and so then you know that's where you applied your expertise into editing and then writing introductions for each and every one of the people that we interviewed yeah it was a it was a it was a great a great experience uh in a way for me you know i i had done a lot of my own interviewing and obviously have have I had written some books and and done the Century Project and that sort of stuff um, about my own journey through that uh, uh, that evolution, that discovery, I guess you could say, uh, that 
sort of creating our own college course of going back and and uh, really digging in with these guys and then going, hey, they're still around. Let's get to, you know, I'd like yeah. to get to know them and ask them personally. Um, and what, what was so appealing to me was that you guys had this enormous amount of raw material that had just been sitting on the shelf for, t- for 10 years. And, you know, here's all these guys and here's a, you know, 50 page interview. It needs to be 12 pages, right. you know, go. Yeah. And, uh, and so it, it wasn't easy work necessarily because, um, you know, a lot, a lot of these guys are, are getting on in years and maybe they didn't remember all the details or they would start a sentence in one place and then the sentence would end up in another place and they would cover three different subjects in one sentence. So, you know, slogging through some of that stuff was was difficult in the editing process. But it was almost like for someone like myself, you know, who's a, a freak for, for research and, and for all this um, uh, old data, you know, um, it was like a gold mine because even things that I learned from the things that didn't get into the book, you know, just having the opportunity to see everything in its raw, unedited form was, was fantastic, as I'm sure it was for you when you initially met and interviewed these guys. Yeah. Um, yeah. It so, was anyway, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, great. A, and and so many... It, I think one of the nice things about the book um, is that, you know, there's a DVD that goes with it where we were able to include um, at least, you know, seven to ten minutes of almost uh, all of the interview subjects. And I think, you know, it's 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 one thing to read a, an interview that's been, you know, edited and, and transcribed and, and put together and flows nicely, um, but maybe it's a little more sterile. You don't get the sense of the personality of some of these guys. Uh, and I think when you pop the DVD in and you watch the footage of the interviews themselves and you actually get to see, you know, these guys, it, it, it adds so much more. So when you listen to the recordings of what they did in their, you know, in their prime when they were young men and, and really on the cutting edge of something amazing, um, it, it, it informs that, you know, I think. Do, would you agree? Absolutely. I mean, that's the one of the best parts of the whole package to me is getting to hear the, the drummers themselves, hear their voices and just see them. And, you know, I love like we the, the three British guys are brilliant, you know, because to hear yeah. them talk and and describe their experience of of what it was like in the the heyday of the session era in the 60s in london is is priceless and then and and speaking of that clem catini talks about how much money they actually made or in fact how much they didn't make you know how low paid right. those sessions actually were you know which and and i loved we included that part of his interview and because it's it's interesting and it, and I love the way he tells the story about that. So that one, you know, that stands out. And yeah, there's so it's kind of kind of like the Funk Brothers at Motown. You know, when you read interviews with those guys, um, when you think of how often we hear Motown songs and how many movies and commercials they've been used in, um, and you know, to realize that they made sometimes eleven dollars to to yeah. do you know some of those songs, it, it kind of boggles the mind. Um, and it interestingly, a, another book, another book that, uh, that 
that I, I had on my shelf that I, I've just started reading because you reminded me, you know, hey, check this book out. It's by Ken Scott. Uh, it's called Abbey Road to Ziggy Stardust. And uh, in the wake of David Bowie's death, we were talking about David Bowie's new album and you mentioned uh, this book. And it's a, a terrific book. Ken Scott, for those who probably most people don't know who he was or is, uh, is, is a legendary recording engineer. And this book is the story of his life as a recording engineer. And his first his first job as a recording engineer was he got hired at Apple while the, right before the Beatles started recording the White Album. So that was his first job as a sound engineer, you know, and he was on a lot of the pivotal recordings during that period. Hey Jude, I think, uh, White Album. And then he worked with, with all the Beatles later on on their solo projects. But one of the things he writes about in the book along the same level that we're talking about is that, um, you know, he, none of the engineers uh, who had worked at Apple were ever credited on any of the, the Beatles recordings. Maybe, maybe when they were reissued, but the original recordings, they, they were, they never got any credit. They never got any gold records. Uh, when, um, he, he notes that when the, uh, Love, which is the, the Beatles Cirque du Soleil show, you know, yeah. that George Martin's son was very involved with and, um, you know, was, was, I hadn't. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's supposed to be quite spectacular, and, yeah, and they remixed all the I Beatles music it. for it. It's amazing. It's great. Yeah, so definitely want to check that out. But what he said is, when he went to watch the show and it's the premiere and all this hoopla, uh, he looked, and even then, the the five engineers that worked on all this the music that everyone is hearing were not credited in the program. So, um, you know, yeah. to take it back to our book, it, it was a nice opportunity and one of the things that I've really been a big advocate of of in my own work is is giving the Beatles their um the Beatles sorry giving some of these early drummers their their due credit yeah. you know for their contributions and I think that was definitely one of the goals of this book yeah yeah and well it's interesting that that um I've learned that Ken Scott recorded the Beatles by reading that book. I had no idea um, that he did. And like you said, because, you know, they didn't they didn't have the recording credits. But but I learned about him because he was such a big fusion engineer and producer that, that he he um, recorded Billy Cobham, uh, a lot of Cobham records. And in fact, the. Uh, Birds of Fire, Ma Vishnu album, which he talked about in the book when Billy Cobham came into the studio with his gigantic double bass clear five set. No one had ever seen anything <laughs> like that. It became like a museum piece. He says, where, you know, people would come by just to look at it because it was like amazing. You know, that kind of big kid is a little more common now, but in those days, like that was, that was, radically off the hook and then he went on to record um uh, more Ma Vishnu records with uh Narada Michael Walden and then he actually became yeah. the the recording engineer and manager of Missing Persons with Terry Bozio so he's always been a an engineer that's really gravitated towards recording great drummers and he recorded Simon Phillips with Jeff Beck and so that that was my introduction to Ken Scott and then so I didn't realize he had this whole rock and roll background as well so I loved that you know, book. it was his, really interesting to me his earlier less well-known projects right. you know <laughs> that 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 little band the Beatles right. very cool yeah. well um I think uh one of the other interesting things I want to bring up about how we approach this book and how particularly in your interviews, uh, you set it up, uh, which I think really helped to kind of uh, give the book a, a really interesting um, directive is that you, you 
you know, my, my interviews were conducted in more of a random way. In other words, if Royal Crown Review was on the road somewhere and, you know, if we were in Memphis, uh, and I knew that J.M. Van Eaton, you know, the drummer from Sun Records was there or whatever, then I would meet up with him there. Or if I was in Nashville, I'd connect with Buddy Harmon and, and it just happened to be where I, wherever I was. And I was just everywhere I went, I was trying to meet these guys. But, you know, you knew that you were going to be creating a, a particular project. And so in advance of your interviews, you developed a, a series of questions that you kind of, you asked all of these guys this, basic same list of questions. Um, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that. I think it's interesting and it allowed when I was editing the book to kind of give it some cohesion. And I think for readers and viewers of the DVD, it, it also kind of uh, shows sort of how the, the changing nature of what rock and roll drumming meant, uh, not only to these guys, but what it meant to the industry in general. You know, what, what a rock and roll drummer is. Well, I came up with a template of questions because I was inspired by the documentary filmmaking of Ken Burns and, or in his brother Rick Burns. And, they, you know, they have these great documentaries out. And a lot of times they'll have um, a situation and then they'll have five different people comment on the same situation. So you get a lot of different perspectives of some event in history. And so that was my intention with that is I'd, I'd want to find out, well, where do you think it came from that we went from, for instance, straight, you know, swung the swung beat, the, the shuffle field to the straight eighth. Like, how do you think that occurred? And I wanted to hear a variety of responses so i asked everyone the same question and 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 we we didn't get to edit it like that in a in a movie sense but it was still interesting to hear all of them answer some of these questions and and the other really uh i i felt interesting question would have was well how do you classify yourself as a drummer because the world sees you dj fontana for instance as one of the first rock and roll drummers because you recorded with Elvis. I mean, do you consider yourself a rock and roll drummer? <laughs> you know, and he was one of the right. many guys that says, well, well, no, I'm a swing drummer, you know, but the gig came along and it was a good gig. So I took it, <laughs> you know, and it, and so it was really interesting. To and when he, when he took it in 1955, it, it's not even exactly clear as to whether everybody agreed that that was rock and roll or even what rock and roll was. Sure. I mean, rock and roll was just completely being defined um, by everyone. You know, today I think we agree to some degree on what rock and roll is. Yeah. Uh, but at that time, it was a lot of different things. Sure. Um, and it was changing yeah, even man. month to month, you know, yeah. literally month to month. Like people would hear – one guy would hear something on the radio and then write an answer to that. And then somebody would hear that and come up with another piece of music that was uh, an answer to that. And, and it was happening quickly and, and in real mm -hmm. time. And, and it, all these like ideas that we live with now, like what's rock, you know, rock drumming and, and country drumming and the, they have yet to be, let's say, codified and, and identified as to, you know, having particular characteristics. It was, everything was still coming out of swing drumming, you know, which, which had yes. matured at that time to a high degree. And, and all the music of the time, what, when they started using drums, whether it was blues or, or country or, or um, rhythm and blues, or this early rock and roll, it 
it all was still just an extension of swing drumming. And I think a couple other points, a lot of styles, for example, country had never had drums. Right. So, you know, country was just starting to integrate the idea of even having a drummer be a part of the music, um, let alone, you know, what that drummer was doing and how to define that. You know, gospel music, for example, um, the idea of having drums in a church would was, you know, today we're sort of used to that concept or, yeah. you know, having drums be in religious music like gospel music. But um, that was something new in the 1950s and into the 60s. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think the book really speaks to the fact that when you go back and look at early rock and roll, it is a, um, it is a complete patchwork quilt. <laughs> uh, it's like a Frankenstein monster where stuff was just being shoved together. And uh, one of the other podcasts that I've done, uh, on, in this series looks at the song Rock Around the Clock. And if you, if you take that song and we do, we've interviewed Bill Haley's drummer. One of his drummers, Dick Richards, uh, for the book. So he talks more about that experience of being with, with Haley. But one of the weird things about Rock Around the Clock that always blew my mind is that, you know, as, as a band, as an instrumentation, the, the different instruments in the song and the styles that you hear in the song, none of them reflect what we would think of as, you know, rock and roll. Like when you think of Journey, you think of a rock band, electric guitars, you know, harmonies, yeah. big, big drum sounds, electric bass, you know, that, that, the rock around the clock had an upright bass. It had a pedal steel guitar. It had a former country singer who was now trying to sound like R&B black guys. Um, it had a jazz guitar solo and the drums were, were played much more quietly without real heavy backbeats by a guy who was a swing Gene Krupa era session drummer. And the main rhythmic engine of rock around the clock is not really the drums as much as it is the bass, yeah. which is playing uh, a, a slap style, which actually harkens back to blues, more traditional blues and more traditional um, country styles where, again, they did not have a drummer. So, that it was up to the bass to lay down the rhythm. And when you take all this and mash it together, it's, it, it on paper, you would think this shouldn't work. You know, how is this going to possibly work? But when you hear the resulting product, uh, which is rock around the clock, and you really put it on and listen with fresh ears and crank it up again, it sounds phenomenal. Yeah. And in the way it moves, the energy that it has, and the, you know, you can see why this song was really the first song that introduced the masses of America, you know, the, the middle America white kids to the concept of this is what rock and roll is, right. you know, and, and influenced so many people like the Beatles, like, uh, Elvis, you know, well, uh, I mean, Elvis was, a couple of years after that, Bill Haley really was ahead of the curve, right. but it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's just unbelievable. You know, it's such a great time period. And I think, you know, hopefully this book will allow people kind of a window in so they could just see how crazy and cool this was, all these things that were happening, you know? Yeah. And then that tune was swinging. It was still, it wasn't. And that tune was it swinging. It straight eight. It was swinging. So, so it. As was most of yeah, early, early rock and roll exactly. was, was still swinging. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a great um, treasure trove of information for drummers. And and then what I think, it, you know, I would suggest you, you get the book, read the book, and then put together your own soundtrack for the book. Like listen, listen yeah. to the music, and and take it beyond those interviews. And and you'll those that music will sound different to you when you have the insights that you gain by reading the interviews. It it really changes everything. 
from something that sounds like an oldies recording to now when you put it in a perspective of, oh, it came after this, but it came before this, and it, this is the guy that, that actually played the drums. Like you have, you're so much more personally, in, you're invested and knowledgeable, you have new insight, and the music will transform. It'll actually sound different. That's a great, great point, and something that I... I went through the same experience because, you know, in playing in Royal Crown Review, we were playing songs and I was learning drum parts to songs. But when I actually met the drummer who played on that song and talked to him about what that experience was like um, and learned sort of a larger repertoire yeah. and then maybe heard him play today, suddenly it's like, oh my God, you know, you're absolutely right. You're you're far more uh, personally invested in um, your appreciation of this music and suddenly... I would put it in the same category with other favorite songs, say, that I had grown up right. with or that, you know, um, that, that had surrounded me in my own lifetime. This was done 30, 40 years uh, before that. So That's so much of the value of doing this kind of research and, and getting this kind of knowledge. Is it, it just it changes how, how music sounds to you. And then when you're on your own gigs you, you you're the well seems deeper that you're drawing from you you have a lot more ideas that start to to flow and and that's how it works for me things make more sense and i i make better choices and then you're playing press rolls on a fusion gig. <laughs> Let's see what I do. And making it work. This summer. You know? well, I'm hoping I get a few press rolls in this summer. We'll see. <laughs> that would be cool. That would be cool. Well, I think this is a perfect time to wrap it up. Um, Steve, as always, a, a giant pleasure to converse with you on any number of topics. And, uh, you know, thanks so much, man, for, for joining us on the podcast. All right. And, and great. Great luck and, and all the best with, with the uh, continued endeavor of this podcast. I think it, drummers are going to really enjoy this. Fantastic. All right. Thanks. Talk to you later, Daniel. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Daniel Glass Podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to follow me on Facebook at Daniel Glass Drummer, Author, Educator. And please make sure to jump over to iTunes and give us a rating on this podcast. Whether you liked it, whether you hated it, one star or five stars, every rating truly helps. Let those funny people smile. How can there be a virgin aisle? do